All right, thank you guys. That's Anchor, all right? Hey, we're going to put that song up on our Facebook page later on today, um, maybe throughout the week, and, and give you opportunity to get into that and um, see that in your newsfeed um, as well, all right? Um, hey guys, this morning we start a brand new series called Anchor Point, and traditionally I'm very excited about starting a new series. It gives me energy because I get bored teaching the same thing over and over and over again, and I think you get bored and maybe I just project that on you. I don't know. But here's a new series, and I'm, I'm kind of enthused about that, but I need to say this, okay? Um, this morning is going to be hard. This is a hard teaching this morning, um, and I also want to begin in a harder way because I think it's reality for where we are, and I want you to understand that. This week I had a conversation that made me very angry, and I usually don't feel that way, and it felt off. But then as I went on with it, I'm like, this is right, but I don't like it. Um, had a conversation with a friend of mine who went to seminary with me who's been in what we call the ministry, um, been in missions, <clears throat> as well as in a role that I am in right now of preaching and teaching the Word of God regularly, who said to me today, said, Tim, I've done a 180. I'm done. I'm numb spiritually. I don't believe God exists. My wife and I are done. And our kids know it, but I've got nothing left. I've got nothing left. And after about an hour of talking to him, I, I'm angry. Not at him. I'm just angry. And I, I asked at what, you know. And I think what I'm angry at is the spiritual battle that I believe was lost there. And I don't think it's gone completely because we still will talk. But he's not the first guy. In the last month, there was another middle-aged man who's come to me and said, Tim, I want you to know I've held the faith for all of my life. I grew up in this county and I'm done. I'm done. I don't have it anymore. I'm done. My wife, we're done. Our kids know it as well. We're numb spiritually. How can a good God let these things happen? And he's walked away. In a month's period of time, we have these conversations. Now, I can't tell you... <laughs> I've told so many of you individually that if, if you, as you talk to me personally here within the body at Grace Point, if you're listening online later as you talk to me as well, if I could only reassure you that your struggles that you are going through are not uncommon, that the people sitting in front of you and behind you and around you are having the same problems in their marriages, are having the same problems in their struggle for identity, are having the same financial and spiritual problems. What makes me angry is this constant battle that we fight, and sometimes almost anonymously or quietly or privately without an engagement with one another on what is really happening and what is really worth fighting for. I feel helpless sometimes. And I think that was part of my anger of this week. Like, come on, this matters. You know, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And I think of so many of you who we, we have talked, we have talked, so many of us have talked privately and, and personally, so many things that you wrestle with, 
so many things that I wrestle with. We fight and we fight and we fight and push up against the struggles and the hard stuff of this life. And whether that hard stuff for you is the reality of the difficulty of your marriage right now, which for some of you that is it, it is just hard, it is flat out hard and you've thought of giving up as well, or that hard stuff for you is your spiritual life like my friend this week who was like, I've been done for the last couple of years. Maybe that hard stuff is that for you or you're a young adult and that hard stuff for you is that you maybe even grew up in this church and you feel like it'd be too big a risk to say, I'm done, but you, you feel done, and you just kind of feel numb, and you're going through the motions of coming here on a Sunday morning, or whatever that is. Or maybe that hard stuff for you is you're in junior high or senior high, and you, you think the biggest thing, the most important thing for you is acceptance, and being accepted by your peer group, and so you're willing to do kind of almost anything to be accepted and liked by people, and you struggle to know, I really wish, I really wish people would like me, and you're willing to kind of give up almost anything to get rid of that tension and that fight within you. So for some of you, that struggle I know is physical. It's sickness or it's disease. It's, it's stillborn children. Right? It's infertility. It's cancer. It's death in the family. Where those things happen, they come into your life and they push on you. They push hard on you. And it forces you to stop and ask, come on, what is this thing that I say I have? Is this faith that I say I have real? Or is this just some shenanigans that I play on a Sunday morning where I come and I'll sing some songs and sit in the pew and kind of hope that everyone around me smiles and I'll feel good about myself? I mean, come on. If this thing is not real, it's over. and It's a joke and it's a waste of your time and my time. And so as I come to this series, I'm excited, yes, but I'm also very kind of sobered up, for lack of a better term. I'm sobered up by the reality. This is not a game that you're playing or that I'm playing. This is not a game where I come to you on Sunday mornings and try to convince you of something. This is life and death stuff that we deal with when it comes to who is this God and how do you find him? And can you, for the sake of this series, can you have a place where when the hardest stuff presses in on you and threatens you, where you can say, ah, I'm going to anchor here. This is what I will hold to no matter what. This is my backstop, and I'm coming here and going no further. And this is why we have this image that we have up here, the image, if you can see that little boat, almost like a raft, tied onto this point, the idea that life is full of storms and the currents of life, the movements of life will make you want to move this way or that way or pull your attention, pull your affections away and this way and that way. And the point of this series is that we believe that we can anchor down deep in the mystery of God's grace to find our identity, that we can anchor, we can hold on to and tie on to the mystery and the difficulty of God's grace, even in the middle of great suffering, of great questioning, of great uncertainty, that we can still anchor and hold to something that is worth holding to. And if you haven't lived life long enough to go through some struggle yet, fear not, it's coming. I'm not a doomsday guy, but it's just reality. This is life. And so my hope for you is that in this series that you can kind of tie that rope, if you will, tighter around something that will be your anchor point because you will hit it and you will hit a crisis, maybe a crisis of faith, a crisis of your marriage, a crisis of your identity. You will hit a crisis. And at that moment, the question is, what do I do? 
what is true and what is not. And I do not want to see you get untethered from the truth of the grace of God. All right? We're done. Let's go. No, we're not done. Just kidding. You can't be out that quickly. But that's it. That is it. All right? Now, here's what I want to do. This, where we're studying this morning and where we're going to go in this series um, is a letter that Peter wrote to an early church. And Peter was a disciple of Jesus. I'll explain more about him in a minute. But how many of you have ever done this in your um, educational journey? You have, instead of reading the whole book, you flipped to the end to find out how it ends. All right, there we go. There we go. And this is what we're doing this morning. We're going to flip to the end real quick. So I'm going to take you here to see where we're going, because this is why Peter wrote his book. And I want you to understand this, because this sets in context the whole reason why he wrote his little letter. And he said this, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So when you think of why in the world did Peter at some point in his life sit down, we believe he wrote around the 60s, early 60s, why did he write this letter at all? Here's what he says, and he says it at the end. This is why I bothered. This is why I sat down. Because I'm writing to you briefly, and I want to highlight this thing. First of all, I'm writing to encourage you. You know as well as I, when you are going through the stuff and the junk and the hard crisis stuff of life and the challenges of, come on, what do I really believe? What you need from people and what refreshes you is when someone gives to you, they take almost like a little bit of of courage out of their pocket and they, they give it to you and they say, here, remember this truth. Here, I'm here for you. Here, I'll pray for you. I'll call you back. I'm gonna walk with you. Let's go out for coffee. It's going to be okay. I've been there. Let me connect you with someone who's been there. Let's not go alone. When someone does that for you, it gives you just a little bit of courage, as if courage can be held in your hand, and it gives you a little bit of courage to keep fighting. We call it encouragement. When I talk about encouragement, I don't mean Hallmark kind of card of encouragement, kind of ultra sappy, and let's all, you know, cry together and hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not what I mean. I mean the courage of let's give you something to say, all right, it's not the end of the world yet. They're with me, even if just one person cares. All right, there we go. And this is what Peter's saying. I'm going to give you a little bit of courage to face what seems like very discouraging circumstances. And then he says this, and I'm testifying that this is the true grace of God. And so as we read this letter, here's what Peter's saying, that if you want to anchor to something, anchor to this. This is, and his whole letter explains it, this is the true grace of God. Not any other kind of works system, not any kind of moral Christianity where you've got to jump through the right hoops to make this happen. This is the true grace of God. And then he says, in response to the true grace of God, he says this, stand fast in it. Stand fast in it. Our response is, kind of like that little boat on our image, tether your rope around this. Anchor to this. Hold to this. The response is stand on this. 
Let this be your backstop. Don't go any further past this, that your life, as someone who says I'm a follower of Jesus, or if you're kind of figuring out what does that look like, what we're saying is that's the person who says, I have confessed my sins, I have asked for forgiveness, I'm trusting in Jesus as my Savior, and I'm not going to push past the fact that that is the true grace of God in my life. I'm going to stand fast on that. And so Peter goes on to explain what he means by the true grace of God. And his letter is a combination of how we should think about ourselves and what we should do with ourselves, a combination of both, okay? Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Peter while you're turning there. If you don't, haven't turned there, I'd, I'd invite you to do that. If you have your Bible, it's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew around you. That is our gift to you, by the way. If you don't own a Bible, please take that on us today. First Peter is in the second third of your, your uh, New Testament, the second third of your Bible. Um, after the book of Hebrews, you're going to start finding that first Peter in there. This is a tip. It comes before second Peter. You're welcome. Thank you for those poor people who laugh. That only encourages those kind of jokes for the future, just so you know. All right? First Peter was written by uh, Peter, we believe. Um, and Peter was a, a fisherman. I want to tell you about him for a minute. So Peter's a guy who, um, his occupation is he does fishing. Um, so you can kind of imagine that world. You get up and, and you fish, and then you, you're done with the day. You clean your nets, and you come back early, early, early in the morning, and you fish. So you probably don't have a big nightlife because it's too much. You have to get out early and fish. Peter was um, called by Jesus. Jesus said, Come, follow me. And so imagine this. If someone walks into your place of employment and says, hey, come on, let's go, and you leave your shift for good, and you walk away. And this is what Peter did. He left his nets and followed Jesus, which some of us say that's foolhardy, and others are like, go, Peter. I love that model, right? And there's probably some mix in there, me understanding both, both sides of that deal. But that is Peter. He's both on one side, charismatic, dynamic, a great leader, and he's also on the other side, um, kind of volatile, and like you don't know what to expect from Peter. And so you would not expect from Peter, who becomes a great leader and a spokesman for the 12 disciples, you would not expect him when challenged by a junior high girl around a campfire one night when she says, I think you're a follower of Jesus, you would expect Peter to be able to hold up under that pressure. But he doesn't. He caves, and he's like, no, I'm not. I don't even know the man. And later, Jesus restores him. But Peter denies Jesus three times. And yet, there's an undercurrent of Peter that is a loyalty component. Peter was the only one who was willing to get out of the boat and walk across the water. Can you imagine doing that? Come on, get out of the boat and walk on the water. I've done that one time in terms of getting out of a boat, not walking on water, I've got out of the boat for a snorkeling adventure, and that was intimidating enough, and I had, you know, um, flippers on, what do they call those things? You know what I'm talking about, yeah, look like, look funny, all right? And the mask that sucks the life out of your face, and it was intimidating enough just to feel the free fall, and Peter was like, I'm going to go out and walk on this with, with no apparatus to Jesus, and that's what he does. So Peter is very charismatic, very determined, very passionate, also very kind of volatile in his, in his personality. After Pentecost, he became a great leader within the church, and he became kind of one of the key leaders in the book of Acts between Peter and, and Paul. He was writing to a people who were in the backwoods area of the Roman Empire. 
And this was not central Rome where he was writing to. This was not there. This was a, an area that did not have the internet yet. Okay? They were needing to pull out in by satellite, uh, if at all. all right? They did not have the, the infrastructure set up where they were at. They were not visited yet by Paul or anybody. They just kind of were out there. But they were part of the Roman provinces, Roman area. It is what is in now modern-day um, Turkey where he was writing to. And you should know this, that it is now the 60s, not like the 1960s or 1860s, but just literally the 60s, like nothing before it, 60s, okay? And he's writing at a time where Jesus had, has been um, resurrected now for about 30 years. And so Christianity is brand new. Like, there's no grandparents, as I say, in Christianity yet. There, there's just not, and that's hard for us to imagine, but there's no second and third generation Christians yet. It just is so new. And so Christianity grew up under the protection of Judaism for a long time. The Roman Empire didn't really care if you were going to believe what you were going to believe as long as you weren't ruining the empire in the process of your belief. So it's very tolerant in that way. If you want to believe what you want to believe, that's fine. Just don't create chaos in here because ultimately the peace of the empire is king. And if you mess with that, we'll mess with you. Otherwise, keep to yourself and everybody's happy. After Christianity began maturing, there began to be problems because it began to be seen as, and indeed was, a separate entity. It was not Judaism. It's different. It's a new thing. And Christians began believing in weird things, like an invisible God. And all the Roman gods were statues that you could see and touch and kind of pray to. They began believing in, in a man, Jesus Christ, who was resurrected, who was a Messiah, conquering king concept. They began talking about things like um, judgment and the end of the world. They began talking about the overthrow of empires. All things which began to be very threatening to a Roman-ruled system. So the pressure, the, the pressure on the young Christian church began increasing just incrementally in the early days of Christianity as it kind of grew out and was seen as different than Judaism. And then something happened that blew that up like crazy, and that was, if many of you know history there, it was the fire in Rome. When Rome was burned and Nero was emperor, he took that opportunity to leverage the already frustration that was mounting with Christians with his own disdain of them and essentially blame the fire on the Christians. At which point Peter, the apostle who wrote this, was captured in Rome. We believe Paul was captured at the same time. This is part of his problem as well, is this pushback, this kickback to that. We believe that Peter was in Rome writing this letter to the people in the northwest provinces. And he is, he is captured in response to this increased pressure of what's happening in the empire at the time. And so he writes to people who are basically asking this question. They're feeling like, we as a people are so new, as a faith movement, we're so new, we don't know if we have a future. Because the empire is pressing in on us and our ethic, our value, is that it's probably not a good idea to fight back. It's probably not a good idea to try to rally the troops and kill a bunch of people to protect ourselves. That's kind of not what they wanted to do. And so the question was, will we survive as a people? And will we survive as a faith movement or not? And we need to hear from our leaders, what does the future hold? 
What kind of courage can you give to us in the middle of us challenging and questioning our very identity? And this is why Peter writes in the middle of his own conflict, in the middle of his own suffering, he writes to people who are trying to figure out, can anyone give us hope that we're going to survive and what is this going to look like for Christianity to keep moving and are we even going to survive as a people? And so it's in the context of great suffering and great difficulty and persecution that Peter writes this letter to people who he, I believe, is essentially trying to say, here is the anchor point. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. This is a context for his language. This is a context for his emotion, his passion. It is going to be challenged. It is going to be pressed on every side, economically, relationally, spiritually, educationally. It is going to be pressed on every side. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And so he writes this letter to the church is in the northwestern part, the backwoods country of the Roman Empire. And he begins in 1 Peter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bible, why don't you check it out right there. We're only this morning going to cover two verses. They are controversial enough that they could require almost an entire series. Peter, I'm reading from the NIV, New International Version. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. A couple things are going on in this text, in this passage, that I want you to see and understand. Number one, he says, Peter and Apostle Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers in the world. He assumes that they're strange. <laughs> he assumes that they're aliens. He assumes that they have this concept that their citizenship is not of this world. Okay? And that is important for them and for us to see that what he's seeing is that they think, I'm a Roman citizen. I should have every right under my citizenship to be treated fairly here in this place. And he's saying, you need to get it right. You are strangers. Later on, he'll say, you're aliens. You are foreigners in this land. You need to think differently. You do not have, as your leading piece of your mind, you should not think, I have every right of this empire to me. No, your empire, your kingdom is not of this world. And so therefore, by default, you're strangers in a land that you happen to be living. Therefore, expect to be treated like strangers are treated. Around here in Lancaster County, you know, you say it often never to someone's face, but we'll say, they're not from around here. And we know what that means. Like They, they just don't think the same or whatever the same, right? And those who are not from around here, they realize, I'm not from around here, right? And th that's the reality. And so this is kind of what Peter is saying, is listen, you're aliens and strangers. You're not from around here. Think differently about your identity and who you are. And then he goes on to say, he goes on in verse 2 to lay out a very just powerful theological framework, which I just want you to know about because I think it's really important to see. In verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. If you'll see there, what we call the Trinity or the Trinitarianism in, in the church means that God is three in one and yet one. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Within 
Peter's worldview and theology, there's this idea that God the Father is involved in salvation in, in, through his foreknowledge choosing, all right, we'll talk about that, and then the Spirit is involved in sanctifying, kind of making you, continuing to grow you in your, your progress, your growth to know God more and to become more like Jesus Christ, and that Jesus is involved in the sprinkling of the blood, and that is of the, the justification of, of paying essentially the penalty of your sin, which was the shedding of your blood. He's taking his blood and kind of sprinkling it on you to make you justified before God, make you righteous and holy in God's sight. And so as Christians, Peter is saying, remember that you are a people who, who have a God who is a Trinitarian God, who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in, e- in, in equal measure, if you will, equal in functionality and role, but different in, in what, they, what they do. Now, that is the big, two big pictures. One, Trinitarianism. Three, number two, um, the stranger's concept. Now, there's an elephant in the room that I read over quickly um, that is probably the biggest thing that I want to hit in here. And this is the, probably the most challenging piece of what Peter is saying. And if, indeed, if I were honest, if you just came this morning and you're visiting this morning and you don't ever come back or you're listening online and you never listen to another teaching of Grace Point Church again, or if you're a regular member and you leave after this because you don't like what I have to say, then at least you heard what I had to say here on this issue. That is very difficult and very hard, which is why I said at the beginning, this is a hard teaching this morning. And it is, it is just what we have to un- uncover and explore in what Peter writes. And what I've missed so far and skipped so far is this whole idea of election, choosing, and the foreknowledge of God. And this is hard stuff. Look at it again in, in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's what? elect, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout no, that area, okay, who, verse 2, who have been, what's that word? Chosen according to the what? Foreknowledge of God the Father. And so the Trinity is involved, and we're strangers, and we get all that, but election is involved. Choosing is involved. The foreknowledge of God is involved. And that makes us very uncomfortable, doesn't it? Makes us very uncomfortable. It's, it's just a hard teaching. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, Paul writes about the fact that God has chosen us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world. And, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon joked, he said, I'm so glad that God chose us before the foundation of the world because he wouldn't have chosen me after I was born. <laughs> and his point being... We understand who we are in terms of our depravity. Even if you don't believe in depravity as a theological concept, that means that we're fully sinful before God. We all know that we even fail to meet our own standards, right? You've made a commitment to dieting, and you've not kept that, right? You've made a commitment to write somebody regularly, and you haven't kept that, have you? You've made a commitment to pray for somebody and you haven't always kept that, have you? I mean, right? We're just people like that. We can't even keep our own standards, let alone God's standards. And so this act of choosing, essentially what this means is that God has chosen, not on the basis of anything that you or I will do in response to salvation, it's just flat out, God chooses on the basis of his character and his grace and his mercy according to his foreknowledge. And this is where Peter begins, and this is is hard teaching. This is hard teaching. 
Paul writes about this in Ephesians, he writes about it in Colossians, he writes about it in Romans 8 and in Romans 9. In Romans 9, he talks about the fact that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And this is a struggle. This is hard to process. God is choosing, according to his foreknowledge, those who come to salvation. Let me say a couple things. Number one, there are some things that we should not know and God should know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about the secret things of God. Now, as grown adults or growing adults, we even struggle with that concept. It makes more sense when I illustrate it with a parent-child analogy. Think about a five-year-old in a home. Any parent who's ever had a five-year-old would say, we do not go over the monthly budget with our five-year-old. There is no win in that. Number one, they cannot handle it. Number two, they cannot contribute to it. Number three, it will only create chaos and confusion. There is no win in that. And so parenting, we know. There are some things that our children should not know, right? Like the conversations you have with your parents after they go to bed at night, right? They don't need to know all that stuff conversations you have at work with your boss or whatever, they don't need to know all that stuff, right? There are some things that children just should not know, and we're okay with that, right? At a parent-child level, that makes sense. In fact, that's good parenting. We would say, boy, that's bad parenting if kids know and need to know everything. They're not ready. They can't handle and they shouldn't know everything. Too much of a burden to put on them. That's what parents do when you're healthy parenting. You don't give them everything. There's some things that we should not know. Number two, there's also some things that we should know even though we can't understand them. It's a different category. There's some things that we should know even though we can't understand them. Think again about our parent-child analogy. A child needs to know one dessert is a good idea, two is not a good idea. But I don't understand. You don't need to understand. You just need to know, right? Right? Children need to know, okay, you don't drink everything that is a liquid. But I don't understand. You don't need to understand. You just need to know, right? And so there's this whole category that exists, things you should know, even though you can't understand them all because you're a child, right? We understand that. In fact, we would say it's good parenting and healthy parenting to lead kids into that. And even if you can't understand it all, children, you need to trust me that I know what I'm doing. And the kid says, but that's not fair. And you say, I don't care. It's just true. You need to know this. And in many ways, this is where this challenge and difficulty of election, choosing, and God's foreknowledge falls for us. Who am I to speak to God, to say, God, let me tell you something. You've got this part wrong. This isn't fair because you know what's behind the question and really the pushback of this isn't fair I'll tell you what's behind it 
What's behind it is this reality. What's behind it, the assumption is this, that we are at the center of the universe, and this choosing says we are not at the center of the universe, that God is. When we push back and say, it isn't fair, you need to explain yourself to me. In other words, I'm the judge and the jury of all that is fair and all that is right in the world. You need to run your system by me before it makes sense to me. And parents know with kids, no. No. I do not need to run it by you. I love you anyway. You can trust me anyway. I'm a good father but no, you don't need to understand. You don't even need to like it. You can think it's completely unfair, but this is what you need to know because you don't have the capacity to understand more. That's not a knock on you. It's just reality of who you are right now. And what's underneath our pushback to choosing an election is this, that we think that this world centers around us and that the world is all about me and that you think the world has to revolve around your logic and what makes sense to you. And when it doesn't, you will push back and you will fight and you will come to a crisis moment in your life and you will say, this faith doesn't make sense and it has to make sense to me or else I can't buy it. And I'm saying there's some things that you need to know even if you don't understand them, you need to know them. And the world does not center around us as humanity, but it centers around God and his justice and mercy. And that is a hard pill to swallow. But this is where Peter begins. You're going to have suffering? Yes, you will. You're going to have a crisis? Yes, you will. You're going to want to give up on your faith? Maybe you will. But the reason that you're going to do that is because you're going to think the world has to revolve around meeting my needs. The system that I created for faith has to meet my needs. And when it doesn't, I'm walking. And Peter says, you are chosen by God. Get this straight. The world does not revolve around you or me, but around the mercy and the justice, the sovereignty of a God who does not need to explain himself to us. Yeah, but, yeah, but that's not fair. But we serve a God we can trust, even if we think there's an equity issue, just like parents understand. Even if my kids don't understand it, they need to know it. They need to know it. Here's what I want to say this morning. If it's not about you and not about me, There's implications for that. If this world and your world and my world is not centered around me, therefore, number one, I am not the judge of what is fair. I'm not the judge of what is fair. I'm not the judge of what is right. I'm not even the judge of what is good. I just don't have the capacity to do that. If if we're honest, what parent has ever been able to say, I have been completely honest, fair, and equitable with all my children all the time? Are you kidding me? I mean, we can't even create an, a, a, a justice system that's equitable in our country, can we? We're kind of starting from scratch, and what have we created? Chaos, all kinds of chaos within the quote-unquote justice system. And so we're going to be the ones to determine what is fair from God, right? That's a good call. We are not the judge of what is right, and we want to put that on us and say, no, 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 God, you've got to explain yourself to me, this choosing election thing, too hard, too much, it doesn't make sense to me, it's not fair. If it's not about me and not about you, then I'm not the judge of what is fair. I'm just not the judge 
of what is fair, and it comes down to your worldview. Now, second thing is this. If this is true, and this is important to see, that if choosing election for knowledge of God is true, which is hard for me to get around because it's written all throughout the Bible, okay? I tend to believe the Bible. Then it gives you and it gives me incredible meaning and purpose in life. When you realize you, you were chosen for this. You were chosen to carry the faith that you say you have. You didn't just stumble upon this because you had some nothing better to do on a Sunday afternoon and, oh, I guess I'm just maybe not as good as somebody else. Listen, the choosing an election reality says you were chosen for this kingdom. You were chosen for this. And what are you going to do with what you were chosen to do? You were given a great trust in your faith, in your calling, in your leading, in your bringing to salvation. And choosing an election reminds you, I'm living for something. I'm going to work for a bigger reason. I'm in my family for a bigger purpose. I'm a husband not just to meet my needs, but to serve my wife. I'm a wife not just to meet my needs, but to serve my husband and to lead my children if God gives us them. That calling an election and choosing, while difficult and seemingly unfair, and I understand that, also gives you a strong sense of humility and loving service to people. To say, this is not about me. I'm not in it because God saw me as good enough. On his mercy, he chooses. I can't understand it, but I need to know it. And it gives me an incredible sense of value, worth, mission, and purpose in what I do. So this morning, I'm telling you, when I look back to the people that I've talked to this week, one of whom says, I'm done, I'm numb to the faith, it can't make sense of the pain that I've been through. The people that I've talked to recently who are just, honestly, they're trying to debate whether they should have an affair or not. <laughs> you know, I kind of know what the Bible says, but should I anyway? I don't know. It just seems right. Maybe I should get a divorce so we can be free to do this. I'm like, come on, come on, come on. This world isn't about you. It's not about me. And when we get that mixed up, all of a sudden everything becomes fair game for us. And when things don't make sense for you, and when you deal with suffering and difficulty and you question all these things and you put yourself in the position of judge and jury and say, this faith thing has to make sense to me, then we get ourselves in a whole boatload of trouble. And Peter begins from the beginning to the people who are suffering in the northwest province of, of the Roman Empire at the time. He's saying, listen, to God's elect, and that's how he begins, to God's elect, strangers, in the land, chosen, chosen by the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be to you in abundance. And this is who you are, chosen people, strangers who will experience great suffering, hardship, and difficulty. But the anchor point is this reality that God is at the center of your universe and not me. And when he chooses, he does so out of his mercy, out of his mystery, and out of his goodness. And I may push back, and I may say it's not fair, but I do not have the capacity or the wisdom or the intellect to determine what God should do. 
I'm a creature of his. And so as you walk in the journey that you're in now, here's a question for you. What do you need to do right now with your faith that you have been hesitating to do? What do you need to step into that you've been afraid to step into? What questions do you need to ask? What conversations do you need to have with your spouse or your friend or your coworker? As a result of this reminder that if you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been chosen, drawn, elect. Therefore, there is great mission, purpose, and meaning for your life. You are not here by accident. And so live your life with that purpose, that anchor point that you have been chosen. You've been drawn. You're God's elect, strangers in this land. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we want to pause and recognize the difficulty of this teaching that seems countercultural and seems very difficult sometimes to own as our own. But I pray that you would give us courage to be reminded of this very simple truth that we are not at the center of the universe and that all things equitable and just and fair do not need to be approved by us because we are limited in our capacity even to play out justice and right thinking and right planning. Remind us again, Father, this world is not about us, but about you. And that everything that happens is done under your mystery and your sovereignty and your mercy and your love. We believe that. Remind us again, Father, that we have this hope as an anchor. That you are an unshakable God who, even though we can't understand, are good and loving Father. Give us courage to do what we need to do with what we heard this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.